Welcome to another Homebrew Audio podcast. Record professional music and voiceovers on your computer. I'll show you how. In today's episode, interview with Daniel Rowland. I am here today with Daniel Rowland, Oscar-winning, Grammy-nominated engineer, producer, and head of strategy and partnerships at Lander Audio. We're going to find out what that's all about later. And longtime, full-time professor at MTSU, Middle Tennessee State University in Nashville. He's worked on projects as varied as Nine Inch Nails, Seal, Meek Mill, Philip Glass, Gwen Stefani, and the Sandbox Metaverse and Game, along with dozens of, and this is so freaking exciting, (laughs) properties such as Star Wars and Marvel. That is uh, so, so cool. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks so much for being on the show. No, thanks for having me, Ken. Oh, you are so welcome. This is exciting. You've worked on some super exciting projects, and I actually have fantasized about being involved with Star Wars and Marvel productions. Uh, we're always listening to the end credits and the music of uh, usually the Marvel productions and the and the seven beat, you know, that seems to be the superhero theme that I don't know, it's I, I get a little verklumped when I'm talking about uh, the music that goes on there. So tell us a little bit about what that was like. Well, yeah, and to be clear, like, especially with the Star Wars and Marvel stuff, the main g- job I'm doing on that stuff is is mastering, right, specifically. Now, there's so, like some of the stuff I've done with Disney and Pixar, I've done more of the production work, and there's some mixing in there, but the mastering stuff. So for the, yeah, for Star Wars, uh, mainly for like the Disney Plus shows and the Marvel Netflix shows and all that, you know, and Disney, all that kind of stuff, doing, uh, yeah, doing the mastering for the video games as well. So that's, you know, oftentimes working with the composer and his mix engineer just to, you know, make everything, we'll talk about what mastering is, of course, but to make everything right. pop. So, you know, whether it's in one of the films or, or shows, or if it's, you know, you're going to Spotify or Apple Music to listen to the music, you know, it, it sounds the way that it should in the way that the, you know, the artist's intent was. Well, I mean, just to be involved in any way. Oh, I'm such a nerd, mastering. man. Like to be, <laughs> to have any involvement. And now we've, I've done, I don't even know, we've done Lander as well, uh, you know, probably dozens of Star Wars alone projects. Yes. You should see my studio. It's, there's little Star Wars trinkets everywhere. So it's, it's something I've been, everyone has that thing that's kind of been part of their lives since they can remember yes. Star Wars is definitely that for me. So to, to touch it, and I got to go stay, you know, I've gotten to work at Skywalker Sound, which I never thought I would get to do to go stay at Skywalker Ranch for a week while we were recording an orchestra for a Pixar project I did. Like, uh, you know, it's, yeah, I've gotten to do some stuff that I, that is definitely bucket list, bucket oh, list yeah. things. Absolutely. That is so cool. So how did you get your start in working in audio and music? Good question. I kind of came in Everyone's got like a weird path, I think, into the professional side of the industry. And I think mine is no different. I started like a lot of people, though, just as a, you know, 14, 15. You know, in my case, I learned how to play guitar uh, and was singing a bit and and just was playing in bands in high school and, and started gigging out and making money with that just locally. Like I never, it's funny looking back, I never had any aspirations of touring internationally or like recording albums even. It was just like, I want to go make some money, play in clubs and and drink beer and have fun. And I did that from about the age of 15 to about 25. Okay. So about 10 years, that's a big part of what I did. And I was still working a regular job. I worked at a grocery store for almost 10 years, different ones. And that was kind of my thing. And it was like, well, I guess I'm going to play music in this Charleston, South Carolina, you know, on the side four or five nights a week, whatever it was. And I'm going to manage a grocery store. And it is interesting, again, looking back on that. So I actually ended up going to college 
for recording, but I didn't go, as I said, until I was in my mid-20s. So I think I, I got there when I was 26, so pretty late uh, relative to most people. Um, and I was just tired of, I was either going to go to rehab or go to college. I'd been, you know, and I was like, I'm going, <laughs> let's go to college. Maybe that's a better decision. And in hindsight, you know, nothing wrong with either of them, but college is the best way to go for me. And I got a, a bachelor's degree from the University of North Carolina at Asheville in recording arts, which I knew nothing about when I went. Absolutely. Everyone who's listening to this podcast know, knows more about recording than I did at the age of 26 going to college. I guarantee you. That's saying a um, lot. Ah, shoot, man. I was, I can't, I was flying blind. Honestly, I was just trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I didn't want to go to school to get a music degree, like a jazz or a classical composition degree. I wasn't that savvy, but I wanted to do something in music on the creative side and recording just was like, oh, I could do that and still learn more about music and still, you know, kind of evolve my skill set and, and that's what I did. And I ended up going straight through to grad school as well, because I, I got a teaching scholarship to the school I've been at for 15 years, Middle Tennessee State. And I've taught at other schools, Belmont and Art Institute as well, but I've consistently been there. And that was kind of my thing. So I started kind of as a, you know, just playing music in, in my town, ended up going to college and then got into the professional side of the industry. Right. So it was, it was after school as I was a teacher that I started working on all these, you know, larger projects and then eventually getting involved with technology companies like, like Lander. I can imagine, I'm trying to um, imagine that path uh, for myself. <laughs> it's and totally backwards. It started off out fairly similar, actually. Yeah. But then I went, to, I went to the Air Force Academy and they didn't have any music, uh, any, any you know, sort of music yeah. or recording stuff available to me there. Uh, they wanted me to do military stuff. Go figure. Um, yeah, shocking. So, yeah. So, so once you were done with that, how did you end up like getting on the radar for the likes of those famous acts that you've worked with? And of course... Uh, the Disney properties and stuff. How, how did they find out about you? Sure. So by, and this actually may be helpful to some of your listeners. No one cares about who I am, right? Like I don't have any, there's so many people who've done so much awesomer stuff and they're so much more talented than I was. And certainly when I was starting out, no one, you know, I didn't have the experience for any of those artists or, you know, you know, franchises to come give me any work. Right. So what, what I did, um, is I just, you know, like a lot of people, I was engineering and producing kind of for free, you know, for friends bands, for anybody that I could find that was doing something like a level above what I was doing. I was like, I want to work with you. How can I help, you know, really coming in and just, you know, not with my handout trying to get something from them, but, you know, kind of coming with an open heart and kind of offering what, what skills I had. And that's, that's how I leveled my career up. I mean, I, I ended up, Long story short, I, I eventually got connected with an artist named Adrian Ballou, who most people probably won't know who he is, but he's kind of this, in the music world, this iconic guitar player, singer who played with Frank Zappa and David Bowie and, you know, fronted King Crimson for 30 years and has just done a lot. And, you know, I, I took my students over, not to be long-winded about this, but this is actually an interesting lesson. So I mentioned that I was like a teaching and somehow I ended up in the industry on the professional side. So I took all my students over to, to his studio one day. I, I just met the engineer, I guess, online or something like that. And it's like, hey, can I bring my students in and we'll, we'll watch you like record? And he was like, sure, come on over. And this is for anybody, like get in a space where cool stuff is happening. And they were, they asked my students, hey, does anybody want to start coming and like interning or helping us record this, this album? And none of my students wanted to do that. They all wanted to be paid what? to come, to, uh, dude. <laughs> it broke my heart. I almost quit teaching. I almost quit teaching. So, uh, and I remember exactly the students, this has been a long time ago, that, that said, no, we only want to come over. They knew nothing about recording. If you're going to pay us some money to come out here to this gorgeous studio to work with this guy who has all these connections. So anyway, I was embarrassed by that. So I said, hey, I'll come out. 
you know, and, and lend a hand. Right? And I'm not, you got to be humble, right? It doesn't matter who you are, sure. what you're doing. Those are the kind of people you want to be and who you want to work with. So anyway, started going to the studio and, and started, you know, kind of guitar teching. I didn't even know much about guitar teching. I just learned. I do this all the time. I like I dig a hole, jump into it and find a way to climb out of it. I always tell my <laughs> students, do that. Like find opportunities, commit to stuff you're not uncomfortable with and you'll figure it out if you're smart. So yeah, that, that was it. And I started going over, started doing some guitar teching stuff. This is a guy who had a huge guitar system. I mean, like hundreds of guitar pedals and things that he would try to, it was ridiculous. So downsizing that to a computer and I eventually built his studio eventually started auto, this is over years, audio engineering for him. And then we became partners. So co-producing everything together, hundreds of songs as equals. And that's how, that was really my path into the kind of the upper echelons of the industry is through somebody who already had that respect. And I kind of worked my way respect wise up the food chain in his eyes. And, and to the point where, yeah, we became best friends, toured around the world, a number of different times, put out a ton of music, got to do a lot of the things that I, I chatted with you about already. And, and then of course that led me into other, you know, that just kind of opened doors that I, that I went through and led me into a lot of other opportunities on the tech and creative side of the industry. And that's, that's how that happened. Boy, that's incredible. Uh, but yeah, I, I totally get the, the, the opportunity to be able to work with someone who can sort of t teach you, show you the road, mentor you basically. sounds like. Uh, yeah. Know, yeah. yeah. And, you know, that involved a lot of like, and again, another good lesson for people. Like I always tell my students this, and maybe this is beyond the bounds of this discussion, but like. I was, at that time in my life, I was 33 years old, let's just say, something like that, right, when I met this guy. And, you know, I had an apartment and I had a car and I was like kind of living my normal life, you know, and and trying to do this stuff on the side. And I ended up getting rid of my apartment and moving in and living in this guy's basement for free for like four years as I was his engineer to like- oh, wow. You know, I always tell people there's a reason not to live beyond your means. There's a reason I drove. I've never in my lifetime until about two years ago, driven a car that cost more than $4,000 and I'm not poor. Right. But like, I always was trying to not have bills and things so that I could afford to put myself in positions where money getting paid for projects that I thought could get me to the next level. Wasn't a must. You should get paid for things that like you should, but sometimes you need to give yourself leeway as you're learning and growing to be able to put yourself in those positions. So I did a lot of that, call it sacrificing whatever, where I just made sure, sure I didn't have the usual bills that all my friends had to pay so I could do a lot of this work and it paid off. So I could not have paid off at all, right? So I could have been sorry about that, but in, in hindsight, it totally was the thing that allowed me to give myself enough runway to improve because I was not a good engineer. I was not a good musician. It took me a long, long than I think most people to really acclimate to this profession and get good at it. So I had to make sure I had that, that time. Wow. That's some wild stuff. <laughs> All right. So Lander. So how did that Lander. start? Definitely. And man. what this is it? Is... And yeah, yeah, what is Lander first? <laughs> you should probably explain. So yeah, I'll explain. And then this is another good lesson maybe about how to get on the tech side of in the industry, which I never, ever thought I would be involved in. So, so first of all, Lander is, Lander started uh, like nine years ago or so as an AI mastering tool. So basically you could come to Lander, you could drop your one track or an album's worth of, of, of mixes that you've done into the Lander app or the, into your browser. And it would, it would master them. And we'll talk more about mastering is it'll polish them up, get them ready for, to, you know, distribute out to the rest of the world so that your music sounds competitive with everybody else's. 
And that was what it was. And mastering exists and there's ma I'm a mastering engineer. I mean, it's one of the things I do and people can master music themselves. They certainly have all the plugins or similar tools that us mastering engineers have, but it's, this is probably a, a tangent, but you can hurt your music if you don't know what you're doing, if you try to master it and mastering engineers are, if they're good or expensive. So Lander was kind of fitting in between those two things. What do you do if you don't have the knowledge or the gear, you know, and what do you do if you don't have the money to hire somebody? So here's a tool that for a few bucks, you can master your music and it's pretty damn good. And that's where Lander started. And it's since evolved into a whole end-to-end -end creative ecosystem. So like, you know, we, we started with mastering. Well, what's, what's right next to mastering? After you master music, you want to distribute it. So you can go on Lander and distribute your music to all the DSPs, the Spotify's, Apple Music, you know, Amazon Title, cool. all that kind of good stuff. And then we started, you know, offering samples. So we've got millions of samples and loops to help you make more music. We've got collaboration tools. So you can like work with people DAW from your DAW to their DAW. Or you can upload your music to the cloud and put comments on it and exchange files and all of that. We built plugins and virtual instruments and just a variety of different things. So long story short, it's kind of the only, I don't know if we're crazy or not, but we built the only kind of end-to-end -end turnkey solution for people who are coming into the industry and just need all the basics in one subscription, you know, say it's 15 bucks a month where you get all that stuff. And then you can start tacking on all the other amazing, you know, instruments and plugins and stuff from other companies as you see fit. But this kind of, it gets people over that learning curve of trying to figure out what the hell do I buy? There's so much stuff or we're like, here's what you, you're good. <laughs> here's, here's your start. And that's what Lander is. Oh, that is awesome because that's a lot more than I thought it was. And now I'm like, oh, I definitely, definitely need to get into that, need to be part of that because well, holy moly, <laughs> I did not, re I thought, you know, in my mind, it was mostly just a mastering thing. Um, yep. So well, I'll get you uh, set up. <laughs> you can play right. Right. Yeah, we got, let's see, we're supposed to have an album done. Uh, don't even have all the songs written yet by, uh, by March of next year. Cool. So um, I, I will absolutely 100%, whether it's done by March of next year or May, be coming to Lander because, ooh. Now, I mainly, as I mentioned before, work with folks that help them make good recordings at home. Most of these folks are, are artists, so they're musicians or they're voiceover actors and uh, people who want to get into voiceover acting or they're people who are podcasters, what have you, and are not necessarily good at or even have any experience with the technical side of things. Yep. So they, they often don't know, well, what mic do I buy? Or they have sprung for some expensive mic and still can't seem to make the audio sound professional, sure. which, you know, if you're recording in a bad sounding room, you know, you could record with a uh, U87 and it still isn't going to sound crappy. So um, it's, it's those people who are just sort of struggling and going, look, I just want to get a CD of my, of my songs out there. Uh, what do I do? So I work with them. I try to give them the basics of, of recording and then and then mixing that stuff. Uh, I usually teach Reaper. I never got involved with Pro Tools just because it wasn't in my 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 path of mostly of being able to afford it at first, and then having sure. the tech to to make it work. And so I started with like Adobe, no, uh, whatever it was Audition. before, Cool Edit Pro, you know, um, oh, yeah. and and stuff. So, but well, VS eight eighty before that, you know, and, and oh, before that, nice. I, think I had a Yamaha Porta Porta five S yeah. or whatever it was, a little <laughs> cassette. So I, I usually teach for multi track stuff. I usually teach how to do it in Reaper. Well, Reaper's and, amazing. Uh, so there's no reason know, for everybody it? not to use the hell out of Reaper. I mean, my I God, know for what you. If you really want to move up, you can, but yeah, wait until you have to because Reaper yep. has so much capability. But then, you know, I give them the basics of recording and mixing, and then that usually ends with the barest basics of 
finalizing the end product <laughs> right. once it's rendered out as a as a stereo file. I hate to even call it mastering because as I came up through years reading recording magazine, you know, there were always articles about mastering. Ooh, you know, it conjures images of wizards working in <laughs> secret labs performing magic spells on uh, on audio files and make them sound radio ready. It's, yeah. it's sort of shrouded in mystery and more than one article ended with well, I can't really give away the secret, you know, <laughs> yep. uh, you know, I'd, I'd tell you, but, um, so if that's wrong, which I assume it is, can you answer a very basic question? What is mastering? I mean, I kind of like how you described it. I sound way cooler than I actually am, <laughs> um, way more mysterious. No, my mastering, first of all, mastering is not magic as we're going to find, right? Mastering is just, it's the final stage of the music production process, right? You're putting the final touches on tracks, kind of enhancing them, adjusting for any sonic issues they may have, you know, um, making sure if you've got multi, you've got songs that are going on an album, they're cohesive and they go together. So one's not brighter or louder or, you know, has different stereo width than the other that's distracting to the listener. And you're preparing it for distribution to go out into the world so that it sounds good in a car and not just on your computer, on your AirPods, but on a soundbar, in a club, all these different places. So it quote unquote translates. So your listeners have the best experience no matter where they are. You know, I kind of use it as a simple analogy. If you think about uh, something like Instagram, right? So if you take a picture on your phone, that picture might look great. You might be like, this is an amazing picture. But then you upload it to Instagram and you get to put some intelligent filters on it and you can remove the red eye and you can, you know, kind of make some of the colors pop. And then if you look at the difference between that first image that you thought was good and that we'll call it a mastered enhanced image, you're like, holy crap, one of these clearly looks more professional than the other. That's kind of what mastering is on the audio side of things, right? It's at hmm. least it's similar. So yeah, and it's a super nuanced process. It's not quite like mixing. It's not quite like recording, but like I said, it's not magic. So if you have a, you, you said this earlier, if you have a nice microphone, but you have a bad recording, you know, the room's not right. You have phase issues. There's a car going by, the AC's on, all of that. And you give that to a, a mixing engineer. Okay. They can fix some of that stuff, but it's harming the audio to do that. So you're degrading the fidelity of what you've recorded. And then you pass that to a mastering engineer. They can, mastering engineers can only work with what was recorded and what was mixed, right? So every stage is equally important, but man, that recording stage, you need to get that right. If you really want to have the mix, you know, the, you can't fix it in the mix. We've all heard it a million times, so you can't right. fix it in a master either. So it's, you got to be cognizant and kind of diligent across each stage of the, the production process. So, you, you know, your track is the best that it can be. So do you recommend that you have three separate individuals, if possible? Uh, nobody or very few people have this luxury. But if you right. do have the luxury of somebody who's tracking the music and then you send that, send those tracks to somebody who's totally outside the scope of the recording to mix it, and then having that prod end product sent to a mastering engineer. Is that, that's something I've heard and I just didn't know yeah. if that was something that um, you would recommend. Not necessarily, to be honest with you. I mean, hey, if, if you can, geez, hire, have Steve Albini record your album, have Manny Marroquin mix it and have Bob Ludwig master it, then yes, you should do that, right? You should, I mean, those people, if you don't know, are very considered, you know, very high end in those respective fields. But in general, I mean, I find... You know, you can certainly record yourself and do an amazing job, right? There's there's no reason, as long as you understand the basics of acoustics and, and recording, that you can't do that. Mixing, a lot of artists 
really want to put their stamp on the mix, right? Sometimes you you have ideas. Maybe you've done some rough mixing in the recording stage, so you may want to. If you're good at mix engineer, mix your own stuff. It's okay. It always helps to get feedback from other people, though. And if you can hire a badass mix engineer, especially one that'll listen and work with you, so you can still get kind of what you want from what they're doing. Um, I, you know, I always recommend doing that and maybe you, you know, you use them again. Maybe you don't, maybe what you're doing is okay. And mastering, mastering is the stage that people really do say, since it's the final stage, right? Like it's the last time to check for any issues that you may not be aware of. Cause as you, everyone's here probably has heard, if you recorded it and you wrote the song and let's say you even mix the song, you're so attached. You've heard it so many times you are blind to a lot of the potential issues in that recording at that point, right? Because you just, it's, you're just desensitized to it. You've heard it. You're focusing on things that I don't care about as the mastering engineer. I don't care what your voice sounds like. You know what I mean? You probably do. I care more about more technical issues and I'm going to focus on different things. So it is good, I think, in the mastering stage to have somebody listen to it or master it or have an, you know, even have a, an, an AI handle it so that you know, things are compensated for that you might be missing. Long story short. So at some stage of the process, yes, involve somebody else just to make sure you're on the right track. Right. Okay. So if I have 13 songs that I have recorded and I'm, I'm ready, I want to put them on a CD so I can, I don't know if that's dating myself already. Um, <laughs> I still call them an album. So some collection yes. of an album. I think that term is now probably more relevant than it has been in the last couple of years. Nor normally what I've done, in fact, I did this on my last one, is I went to a service to actually create a CD. And I can't remember now which one it was. And there was a mastering piece of that package. So right. they sent it out to a mastering engineer, mastering house or something. And that piece of it cost me nearly a thousand bucks. Just the mastering piece? Just the mastering piece. Yeah, yeah. Is that something that was basically what it was in the past before we had things like AI to help us with that piece? Yeah. So, I mean, the the only real options, I mean, there's some people who don't master their music at all, which I think is a mistake, just so everyone knows. That's probably what you don't want to do. The two options are really doing it yourself, which as I already alluded to, is dangerous if you don't know what you're doing. It took me thousands of hours and thousands of masters to really understand and train my ears. I knew how to use the plugins and stuff and the mm -hmm. gear, but my ears weren't evolved enough to hear these really you know, the insane stuff that mastering engineers deal with and hiring an engineer certainly is, has been the traditional path, right? And as a mastering engineer personally, like if I'm mastering your album, yes, I'm charging between one and $3,000 probably to master your album. It's quite expensive. So that's not, they weren't crazy to charge you that much money. Now, hopefully a really good engineer was handling that music. If you didn't get a chance to talk to them, you don't really know. But yeah, that's traditionally how, how that's worked. And that's where I mentioned earlier, that gap comes in. Like what happens if you, you can't afford that? What do you do? Well, AI has gotten quite good on the mastering side of things these days. And I encourage, you know, there's a few different ones out there. Lander is one of them. We've been around the longest and certainly kind of we're the innovators in that space. Go try them out. Like listen to your music. You can try stuff, this stuff for free and see kind of, you know, where it's at and what it's going to do. And not to beat this to death, but like the, if you're going to, a lot of people are going to hate me from saying this. If you're going to spend your money somewhere, let's say I had a thousand dollars, right? And I recorded my track. What do I spend that thousand dollars on? I'm not spending that thousand dollars on mastering. I'm spending it on mixing. Because like I said before, if your mix isn't good, the master will not be good, right? A great mix 
mastering engineers almost do. I mastered a Manny Mariquin track for Flowrider the other day, and his damn mix is amazing. And I didn't, I almost did nothing to that mix because what it's already great. What am I going to do? Right. Because the effort was put in at that stage, and, and the mastering becomes a much easier job. So, long story short, yeah, you know, just make sure your recording's right, make sure your mix is right. And then you have multiple options on the mastering side of things, whether you do, a, you know, have a, a human engineer do it, an AI do it, or you do it. And on Lander's site, by the way, we have dozens of mastering engineers you can hire. We're not like focused on just having AI do mastering. It's really to serve people that it makes sense for. And then you can hire some of the best mastering engineers in the world if you want and, and pay them to do your tracks. That is very cool. And you, you mentioned ha trying it out. I do recommend that. I did do it once because someone not not from Lander, it was one of the one of the other ones, sure. um, contacted me and said, "Hey, what do you think?" And I said, "I have my doubts." And uh, he said, "All right, tell you what, for free, upload one of your unmastered mixes, one that you've already had mastered professionally." So this is from my last album in 2014. I know, not very prolific. And then I did that, uploaded the unmastered version of it got the result back and compared it to the mastered version. And I could not yeah, wow. tell the difference between the two. And that, you know, I wouldn't say that I have the most sophisticated ear, not like a mastering engineer, but I have been listening to music over these monitors and mixing and recording music since I was 17. So <laughs> that is 40 years giving away my age. That is 40 years of working with audio. And I couldn't tell the difference at all. So I think that that technology, I was going to ask you, is it really possible? But I'm just going to say right now that based on that experience, it is possible to get pretty darn close. You get some pretty darn yep. excellent uh, results. It's pretty and amazing these days. I mean, I'm even shocked. I was super skeptical. I started at Lander seven plus years ago and came on board as somebody who thought the concept was a good idea, but like, how is it ever going to sound good? You know, come on, this is ridiculous. And then you know, over years, it's just like anything else. I mean, if you have used Pro Tools or any any type of software to record, it wasn't as good ten years ago as it is now, right? All this type mm -hmm. of technology needs time to evolve, and boy, has it! It's it's pretty pretty wild. Yeah, and it seemed to be programmed to know exactly where my problems were, because I when I sing, I tend to have this uh, upper mid range rip your sinuses out thing uh, going on, uh, build up a frequencies. I don't know what it is, and so you know it knew that it seemed to know that. It seemed to, you know, okay, let's scoop out some of that mid-range stuff so that it's uh, more, more pleasant sound. I'm, yep. I'm, I'm, and my wife thinks I sound great, but, you know, I'm, uh, I'm hypercritical. I go through I go through on her because we're both singers. We both record, too. So when I'm going through and mixing her stuff, I'm like, oh, a little bit of extra. She has the same thing. She has a frequency that, that tends mm -hmm. to, you know, and these AIs seem to understand that that's an issue. Um, I assume that because it's an issue for both of us, that it's a possible issue for a lot of people that the oh, lead sure. vocal tends sure. to have some imbalance issues with, yeah, I mean, just as an example of one of the many things that it was able to do. It was insane. Yeah. So yeah, it's nuts. And like, you know, first of all, just to be, there are some things out there that claim to be AI that are machine learning based that really aren't. So that's why I say go listen to a lot of stuff. But mm -hmm. the ones that are really good, I, I'm again, I'm biased, but I'll put Lander in on that because I've spent the better part of a decade making it better. Like 
it's not, it's trained by like Lander has a whole, the reason Lander got so much better is that we have a whole team of mastering engineers, uh, which I'm just one of that just sits around all day and masters music for major labels basically. So they send us music, we master it. And then our AI basically looks at the knobs that we're turning and learns how to get better based upon. Mm -hmm. So like if I I might take in your song and I might say, oh, there's that frequency in your vocal. So I I get in there and I surgically kind of cut that out to remove that. Well, the AI looks at what I did and it says, ah, next time I see a vocal, like that, I know that I should think about doing that. And that's, you know, I'm generalizing, but that's how this works. I mean, it is built to make decisions similar to what the engineers like myself that are training it would make. And that's, that's why it does what you're talking about. Oh, that's very cool. It's nuts. (laughs) So, yeah. So what is the most, I mentioned kind of probably my most common problem. What's the most common problem that you see slash hear in, in fact, I'm not even sure if you work with home recorded mixes or amateur sure. mixes coming your way uh, much these days. But uh, sort of what is the, do you think the most common mistake people make is when they're sending you their mix? Totally. I actually don't think it, it changes between major label mixes and home mixes because oh. a lot of it's shockingly the, the, the problems are pretty much universal. And there's a lot of mixes I get for labels that are not awesome, right? That were clearly done by the artists kind of in their, you know, in their bedroom, which is fine, but aren't to the level of like if they had hired a, you know, use that budget that they have to hire a pro engineer. So some, some common issues and everyone is probably familiar with these. Number one is that they just made it too loud, right? They really don't understand that louder isn't always better. So like if you're going to send something off to be mastered, whether it's by a human or an AI, don't use a limiter. Don't try to get your mix as loud as you can. Turn your speakers up, right? Turn your monitor controller up if you need to hear it. Turn your headphones up if you need to hear something louder. Don't look to just crush it because if you do that, there's nothing we can do after the fact or very little we can do after the fact. And you don't really leave the mastering engineer or the AI software the room to improve what you did. At that point, it's all try- attempting to solve the problem that you created and ultimately your your music will never sound as good as it could be. So that's like absolutely number one. Having said that, badass, I mentioned Manny Mariquin earlier, his mixes come in hot as hell, right? He mixes incredibly loud, but he knows what he's doing so it sounds good. 80 to 90% of people who attempt that do not do it properly, right? So if you're a world-class mix engineer, mix your music loud, and then, you know, you don't need to trust the mastering engineer to, to do that for you. But for everybody else, leave some dynamic range on that. So that's a big one. Um, another big one is sibilance. So another, another one people tend to, people, if, especially if you kind of want that airy, breathy vocal sound, people will jack up kind of the upper presence range of, the, of their vocal, you know, let's say four to, to eight, nine K, 10 K, that kind of a thing. And it's the sibilance range. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of the, this, we get the S's and this, all that kind of stuff. Right. So then your vocal might sound okay, but then when you hit one of those S's or whatever, then it's really going to pop out. And that becomes a problem because, you know, in mastering we can, we can fix that. I mean, I can go in or at least I can compensate for that by pulling just that frequency range down, but I'm also pulling everything else like the snare drum and cymbals and hi-hats that's in that range down as well, right? So in mastering, you can't pull the whole track apart and just surgically go after one or two components like you can in mixing. We're kind of stuck with it all glued together. So that's a problem. So if I pull that part of your vocal down, now your cymbals might be dull. Or if your cymbals are really bright and your vocal's not, I pull the cymbals down, now your vocal's duller, if that makes sense. So there's always these oh, yeah. trade-offs. So that's a big one. And then a last, I mean, I could go on forever, but there's the last big one is the balance in the bass range between your, assuming you're doing music that has some sort of a bass guitar or synth bass or sub or whatever, that 
and your kick material down kick there, right? Mm. That's a huge one, especially I work on a fair bit of hip hop. It's a big deal where people need to have those things discreetly audible from one another. If it's a bunch of mush, right? There, I mean, there's so, I can do some things with it, but like I said, it's never going to be as good as if you had really dialed that in. And that could be something as simple as side chain uh, compression, right? Where the kick hits, it, duck, it pulls the bass guitar down just for a second. And when the kick goes away, the bass synth or whatever it is comes back up, right? So you create like a little bit of space for it, but it's inaudible to the listener. They just hear that the kick is popping and is really, really tight. But the reality is it's pulling the bass down for a fraction of a second uh, while it appears. There's all sorts of tricks you can do in mixing, but you know, it's important to look out for that because it's a, it's an issue with a lot of the stuff that I get as well. That is an excellent issue because I have a question on that. I've heard conflicting advice on what to do when you're in the mix stage, if you're the person who has control of that. Yep. Um, you have you have bass on, and let's just say one track, and you have your kick on the other. the The old advice used to be, well, let's just scoop out yep. some frequency by between eighty and a hundred or something for one of them because they both seem to occupy the same frequency space, and then for those same frequencies, increase the other one. Yep. Does that work when you're in the low frequencies like that? Does EQ sort of trying to create space that way? Does that actually work? Sure, it absolutely does. I mean, it depends upon kind of the important frequencies and the given instruments that you're dealing with. But yes, I mean, you can create space and it's like fitting, you know, again, kind of a, a cliche, but mixing is kind of like putting a puzzle together, right? So, you know, with a puzzle, you need to create a notch in one piece so that the other piece will fit in. Well, this is similar to that, right? Where you're, you're notching out a frequency in one, boosting an area in another so that they're, they, they fit together in a way that they might not otherwise. Now, when we're talking about the kind of the example I gave with like this dynamics using a dynamics processor, that's a little more intelligent way of doing that, right? Where we're instead of cutting out, let's say, I don't whatever, 80 hertz in your bass guitar track for your kick drum to fit in or whatever, you know, we're only going to cut that frequency out when the kick drum is present. Because otherwise you're you've lost 80 hertz in your bass guitar for the entire time of your track, as opposed to when you need it to yes. go away is when the kick drum appears. And then you keep awesome. that bass guitar full frequency until you don't need it to be. And that's where the kind of dynamic EQs, sidechain stuff becomes uh, you know, more important. And there's some cool little plugins people have put out for very inexpensive that can really help you with this across a lot of your tracks. I love the plugin called Track Spacer. I think it's it's like under 50 bucks, man. It's it's super easy. It does exactly what I just said. You don't need to understand much about side chaining or compressors. There's like two knobs on it. It's a it's a simple way to help create space between the instruments in your mixes and that type of stuff. Don't go crazy with it, but you just you, you just need a little sprinkling of it and as your tracks add up, you'll start to see that there's you get a little bit more depth, a little bit more separation in what you're doing. That's cool. What was that called again? Track spacer. That plug? Yeah, T R A C K spacer in waves or wave arts i forget the name of the company but uh that's i should remember it but yeah look it up it's everywhere it's on sale all the time it's one of the cheaper plugins awesome. you can get and it's very popular for that exact use case that's that's good advice just for me i don't care if anyone else cares. <laughs> <laughs> nice. that's what i'm here for <laughs> yeah no I've, I've been spending a lot of time on on the voiceover course that I'm doing right now, teaching people how to do spoken word stuff. And then I'm coming back around to do something more in depth with music. So I will definitely nice. fold that information into that one. So what's next for you? Do you have anything that you'd like folks to know about? We've talked about Lander, um, L-A-N-D-R, uh, yes. in, in case folks were, were not clear on that. And so what is that? Lander.com? That's correct. Okay. So Lander.com. And so if 
any of those services sound great to folks out there, please take advantage of that because it sure sounds great to me. Is there anything exciting that you're working on right now? <laughs> because that's that's cool to know about. And then anything else you might want folks to to know about that might be helpful for them or for you? Yeah, sure. Oh, geez. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm just, you know, I'm kind of Mr. Technology. So I'm always into whatever's the latest, greatest thing in the music tech space is. And with Web3, which is also super interesting these days and about how that's going to empower artists. Probably the thing I'm into the most at this moment is Atmos mixing. So taking people's mixes and and mixing them in an, an Atmos room, you know, with seven speakers around you, four in the ceiling, a couple of subwoofers and doing that and translating that. So when you listen to that music on, you know, Apple Music or Tidal or Amazon on headphones, it still sounds like this evolved, crazier version, you know, immersive version of a stereo mix. So it doesn't just work in a room or if you have a sound bar with surround speakers, but it works on headphones. You don't have to have the five speakers or whatever for it to work. You don't. And it's not the same experience, obviously, but that technology is really coming a long way. What you can do on headphones to make things sound like they're behind you and flying over your head and, and do some pretty creative stuff as a mix engineer, you know, and as a mastering guy and as a producer, whatever. Like it just is an artist. It gives you the ability to to kind of engage your your listeners in a new way and you're going to see a lot of that you know over the f- coming years come out as we get more into virtual reality and augmented reality that you know the apple glasses and things like that where we need immersive spaces and music that's responsive to that so something to keep your your eye on um, but yeah that's that's kind of my the latest greatest thing on my side of things at most. All right. It's a whole other conversation, I realize, but yeah, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> all right. That's going to be all we have time for today, but that was some pretty darn amazing information and very helpful information for folks. And uh, at the very least, if people out there don't take anything else away from this, is if you are a musician, I'm going to ask you another question here in a second. If you're a <laughs> musician and you're recording either one song or a whole album, do Lander. There's no reason not to, no reason not to that I can, that I can think of. And, and the second question that I just thought of was I said, if you're doing music, did you say something about that you're getting podcasters and audiobook producers sending stuff your way as well? Yeah, it's actually, I, yeah, it's pretty interesting Yeah, that use Lander actually to master their whole podcast, it, you know, not to go long here, but it's one of the coolest things about being involved in developing technology is seeing how people use it for applications you didn't necessarily envision. I mean, we have people who use Lander only to master their drums or to master sound effects for movies, like things I would never really have thought. Podcast is definitely one of those things. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's, you try it out. If you have a podcast, drag it into Lander, choose probably the low set. We have a couple settings you can choose to like audition different sounds and different level intensities and you set, put it on a low setting and it works pretty darn well. So definitely worth, worth trying out. Awesome. So everybody out there, not <laughs> whatever you're recording, <laughs> sounds like Lander is going to be your, your final step. Definitely. Well, oh, this was Daniel, so, 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 so awesome. Thank you so much for all this information. It's been a pleasure. Awesome, man. Well, I appreciate you having me on. I'm, I'm around anytime. And for anybody listening to this, I'm not a big social media person, but I use LinkedIn a lot, you know, on the business side of things. So feel free to hit me up if you ever, if you ever have any questions or want to chat. All right, everybody. I hope that you have left this episode smarter and more excited about what can happen with your recordings because of what we learned from Daniel. Thanks a lot, Daniel. No worries, man. Be good.